Hello and welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders. This is a show where I speak with the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, I'm joined by Neha Mittal. She is a qualitative research director for the qualitative practice at Ipsos, one of the leading market research and insights organizations in the UK and the world. Neha also is the co-lead for the Gender Balance Network in the UK and is joining me today to discuss the wonders of intersectionality and how she has co-led the Gender Balance Network to success. Welcome to the show, Neha. Thank you so much, Leila. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, thank you on this frosty but sunny morning, as you pointed out earlier. And it's brilliant to have you here on a one-to-one podcast. I know we did a brilliant Dal Lounge last year. And it'd be great to start off by deep diving for our audience a little bit into your background and how you came to be uh, leading the qualitative research function, as well as a little bit about your personal background and how that really affects and plays out in your current role and, of course, taking on the role for the Gender Balance Network? So I've been a qualitative researcher for the longest time and I kind of slipped into qualitative research as most researchers of my generation very accidentally because no one in uni says, I want to be a qualitative researcher or when you're five years old, that's never a dream job. So I studied uh, literature in my bachelor's and master's as well as filmmaking. And my fantasy was that I was going to be a documentary filmmaker and have my name splashed out. And I was a documentary filmmaker for a while, but I found that quite lonely. Um, And I also found that stories have an agenda. They're very much kind of funded with a point of view. And uh, so I spent a little bit of time in advertising um, and the most amazingly creative parts of that process for me were research. And so I went into public affairs research and then um, found my joy with qualitative research. And I've lived and worked in a few markets internationally. And that's the other joy of being a qualitative researcher, which is to be able to immerse yourself in different cultures. So having kind of lived and worked in um, India, uh, I grew up a little bit in Pakistan. And then I moved uh, overseas to Kuala Lumpur, Dubai, and finally London. So I've been a bit of a nomad, but finally I feel quite at home in London, kind of put my roots here. And I think, you know, there are some milestones in everyone's life. Um, And for me, having a child was a milestone because I felt to be much braver after her birth. I felt there were battles I wouldn't want her to fight. And so I better fight them now so that hopefully in a generation to come, the world, like you said, is a better place. But Neha, that is really fantastic to hear, in particular around your child being a milestone, because we're about to become first time parents and so terribly excited indeed. Congratulations. Um, When are you having this uh, bundle of joy? Is it um, sometime soon or is it quite late in the year? May the 23rd, actually. So very, very fast approaching. So I'll definitely be asking for your advice come that time. Uh, But it's great to hear about some of your personal experiences, clearly being a nomad of the world, as you mentioned. You've worked in some brilliant, brilliant countries. Kuala Lumpur, absolutely wonderful place. And and India, Pakistan, um, bringing those cultural understandings into your day-to-day work as well as having the different sector matter expertise has clearly been 
a huge benefit and obviously being being a mother overlaid on top of that talk to me a little bit about your your personal background I know you mentioned previously that you were a I think you said third generation immigrant to the country but I wondered on the personal level whether that richness of of traveling and different cultures was a part to play in in your personal background um, so I am a first generation immigrant and it's taken me some time to embrace that terminology and language because what it does is it does other you, it separates you, but I do feel that it kind of also hints at certain experiences standing out for me. Um, I'm a second generation um, girl to have gone to college, which doesn't sound like a lot, but then when I look at my grandmother's life and the choices she had and compare them to my mother's life, and even my cousin's life, who all kind of in their 20s uh, got married, didn't really have the chance to pursue higher edu- education or choose their partners. I feel quite lucky and privileged for having supportive parents, not always, but I've had to kind of fight my way for certain choices. So I did choose my life partner, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but from where I come from, it is. And I did decide to study what I wanted to study. Again, something that was my choice. I think I've been raised to be an independent person and very much own my life choices. So it's almost like you decide what you wish to do. And it's okay if you make a mistake. And, you know, we are here to support you. Um, And I feel that my parents just kind of were very ahead of their times in many ways as well, because they come from slightly conservative families, whereas what a girl can and can't do or can aspire for are quite interesting. Um, My sister, for example, had a long relationship. She broke up with her partner and her next step was to go to America and get a master's because she just wanted to leave the country. And there were people telling my dad that, you know, you're spending such a chunk of money on her education and getting her a master's. Shouldn't you be saving enough for her wedding? And my dad's response was, well, I can afford it now. I couldn't do it in the past. And if she wants to go, then I will. And if she decides to get married or not get married, that's very much her choice. Um, And that's very different from, you know, 30 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, the lives of my mom and grandma. I know that you mentioned that, that it doesn't sound like a big deal, but and I don't fully understand some of the depths of that. Um, But I can certainly relate in the sense that my brother married a... uh, wonderful Indian girl from South India. And again, you know, this is something that has been in in generations learned, taught by elders. And so clearly hearing about your dad and your parents, you see the strength of personality that comes through there and clearly has been adopted by yourself, which is which is wonderful. Things like choosing your own partner, that's, I mean, it is ultimately positively going against the grain of many beliefs. And that's a challenging thing to do, especially when others are are saying that things ought to be a certain way, certainly with your with your dad justifying the rationale as to why he is making certain choices. But clearly it's been of huge, huge benefit to yourself. And I'm sure these are lessons and strength of character that you'll pass on to to your children as well. Absolutely, and I feel it hints at identity, doesn't it? I am a brown woman from a developing market, and I've moved to um, the Western world um, almost six, seven years ago, and it's been an interesting journey um, being a minority 
being someone who looks like me, uh, sometimes I am the person who's never been in a room like that, or I don't see other people like me in that room, whether it's first generation or people who've settled. And often when I kind of talk about microaggressions or um, racism uh, with people who've lived in UK for much longer than I have, it's quite interesting because they've grown up with a lot worse. So they've grown up with, you know, very overt um, racism, discrimination. So when I share what's happening to me or with me, there's almost like an, um, almost like a side, yeah, that's not too bad. <laughs> Whereas for me, because I'm coming into it completely afresh, being from the dominant community in India and kind of being seen as an expat in Kuala Lumpur, for example, it's quite interesting because I can see the other side of it and saying, no, it's not okay. It's not okay. Uh, it's one too many times. Um, and I can also appreciate how it undermines people's confidence, their ability to perform, uh, relationships, how you continue to be a hyphenated identity. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's quite important to place yourself in context and remember who you are, where you are, why you are, what you are, and how life's opportunities and privileges come to you as inheritances in many ways from parents, from society, from context, from markets, and what's appropriate in one market um, and country might not be another. Mm. It's a fascinating expression that you use there, hyphenated identity, which ultimately feeds very much so into everything that we're talking about now around intersectionality and the fact that You've mentioned that developing markets, uh, first generation, being a woman of colour and so on and so forth. There is so much more than purely the gender agenda or the race and ethnicity gender, because, of course, we've got the intersectionalities. We also have the complexities of the different markets and the cultural overlays. You and I are both female. We're both uh, women of colour, yet our backgrounds are so incredibly different. Talk to me a little bit about why you think intersectionality is so incredibly important. And I'd then love for us to move on to some of the power of that intersectionality that has been utilised in what is now a really flourishing employee resource group. So why is intersectionality important? I feel it's important because it's really recognizing, celebrating and acknowledging who someone is and why they are the way they are and the challenges they face. So as a woman, there are certain biases and discriminations I face as a brown person, there's certain biases and discrimination. And therefore, when you look at my identity, uh, there are certain discriminations and biases that result as being both. That said, uh, there are certain identity uh, definers which I've never understood because I haven't been privy to them. So when I moved abroad, people would ask me, has caste ever played a role in your life? And I would say, no, it hasn't. And that comes from privilege and I something that I understand now because it didn't play a role in my life earlier because I was high caste. I am high caste. It's not something uh, that's ever defined what I can do um, in my head. But then I recognize that, you know, it's given me access to opportunities. It's given me access to the life I lead. And also it's kind of, um, you know, I've been in a bubble of protection. I haven't experienced uh, discrimination uh, because I am high caste. And how do you think that mind 
me asking, but I wonder whether we could just pause for a moment and talk a little bit about what caste actually means, because this is so fascinating. And again, I'm already thinking of all these questions I want to ask you about the fact that you've gone from what is perceived as privilege in the one country to now being boot on the other foot as a minority here in the UK. But caste is something I've had the opportunity to learn much, much more about. As I reference my, my brother and, and his, his fabulous, fabulous wife, educating uh, the family and I around the different caste system. And in fact, even all of the different languages over in India. And I went over and spent some time there and was absolutely astounded to realize that the the language of commonality was actually English, but it's really a, a complex web of, of, of different levels of understanding. So can we just talk a little bit about that for those that are thinking, hmm, what's, what's caste? Absolutely. Um, I think the caste system is quite influential even now, even though it is by law uh, something that uh, is not in place, it kind of still exists. And... The challenges around it is that uh, kind of it splits up Hindus into different societal groups according to their work and birth. And um, from memory, it kind of goes up to about 3,000 to 5,000 years ago. And so we're kind of divided into four classes based on what we describe as Varna, which literally means color. So the top of that uh, triangle or pyramid are the Brahmins, the priestly class, the Kshatriyas, who are the ruling administrative and warrior class to which I belong. Then the Vaishyas were the class of artisans, tradesmen, farmers, and merchants, and the Shudras, uh, manual labors. There are also segments who kind of fall outside the system, including tribals, Dalits, who were previously referred to as untouchables. Um, and so the concept is very much about social stratification and it's kind of in carried into other communities as well. And the challenges with this is that there are upper castes who are privileged, they are oppressing the uh, segments below. And there's certain things like intercaste marriage, access to water, access to healthcare, uh, which make it so problematic. Um, and like I said, one of the challenges that I faced is because I grew up in urban Delhi, uh, I had never really kind of experienced caste, so to speak. Uh, but I know that's not the reality for millions and millions of Indians. Um, and that's why I find that question around, has caste ever played a role in your life? Uh, such a difficult answer because I personally haven't experienced any discrimination based as caste, but that is the function of the fact that I do belong to a higher caste. That was incredible. Incredibly insightful. Thank you so much for, for sharing, Neha. And I'm sure it's it's really helped others who are listening understand, because I know it took me a little while to get my, my head around the different caste systems, but ultimately it does affect the opportunities. So very much linked to social mobility and capability of those individuals from those different backgrounds. Now, moving on into your, your current day job as co-chair of the Gender Balance Network, talk to us a little bit about, about this and also employee resource groups, because I know we had a, a chat before we we came to record the podcast but it's incredible I've watched with awe and with a smile on my face as I see 
employee resource groups or what are also called staff networks or business resource groups really being seen more so now as a strategic business vehicle as opposed to a a nice little gathering of people meeting to have a chit chat over tea or cake or, or whatever that might be but they certainly seem to be really going up in the world which is great to see but talk to us about the success of the gender balance network because I know that you've been doing some brilliant things and obviously we heard from you last year talking about International Women's Day amongst uh, one of the many uh, celebrations that you will have as a ERG. So I feel that there's a role in place for employee groups, which goes beyond just bringing people who share a passion or an interest or an area together. I feel they've kind of, like you've hinted, moved into a space where they're able to support the business and challenge the business as well in taking appropriate actions. For example, we've been publishing the gender and ethnicity pay gap. And as an employee race, uh, employee group, we are very much kind of supporting the business in um, driving action plans and working with our senior leadership to define what the action plans look like uh, and making sure we have buy-in and bills from the rest of the business. I feel it goes into a couple of ways. You know, if source like many other companies, such a huge organization. And so the challenges can be around visibility. It can be around engagement uh, with a network um, um, network members, but it can also be about allyship. And then we can look into the specific challenges our business is facing, whether it's around retention, progression, growth, uh, people returning from maternity slash paternity leave, um, how are they feeling? Are women less satisfied or more satisfied with their working conditions than men? And kind of really understanding what are the kind of uh, tipping points where women start feeling differently. So I feel it's a really, uh, it's an asset for any business to drive almost like an independent body of um, members who can challenge the business. I feel it also requires a leadership that's willing to listen, willing to collaborate. And ultimately, we also need to talk about accountability because you can often businesses can set up these network groups and say, OK, we've done our bit. Here's this network and this is meant to solve all your problems. But um, it is about, like I said, working with the leadership and making sure there is some accountability in terms of actions uh, because we are part of the business. And the, you know, the goal is to enhance working conditions uh, for everyone and create a more equal world, more, more happy working environment for everyone concerned. Indeed. And of course, I would be slightly biased. I adore Ipsos, given the fact that our non-exec chair is Ben Page, who is now CEO for Ipsos Globally. But we met Kelly Beaver at the, uh, at the back end of last year, which was also fantastic. And you know, being female uh, and having Kelly now as a new Ben replacement for Ipsos Mori is, is, is brilliant to see. And so I'm sure you have lots of exec sponsors and champions. But talk me through, for those who are listening, thinking employee resource groups, ah, we've got some of those, or, or perhaps we, we, we need to, to grow our employee resource groups. Ipsos is relatively well accelerated in terms of the number of employee resource groups that you have. Talk to me about the, the differing employee resource groups you have. And also, if you don't mind, the setup of some of those, because I do feel strongly 
that the way your employee resource groups are set up, there is the buy-in that you talk about, there is that listening capability, but that's also embedded in terms of a process. And we see a lot of the most successful employee or business resource groups, as they're sometimes often called, have certain milestones in place in terms of growth targets, in terms of executive level sponsorship in terms of cadence and it points to the fact that these are almost being run as business units in and to themselves so love you to unpick a little bit of that uh, in relation to to what ipsos are doing if you wouldn't mind neha of course so i feel that all our ipsos employee groups sit under a broader goal of belong which is kind of working towards making sure ipsos is reflecting the needs uh, and desires of everyone who is an ipsos i mean we do such amazing work and research for all our clients and we want to want to build on uh, you know that for our employees as well so we have employee groups around gender which is gender balance network we have a parent support network we have an ethnicity network which is called reach we have an international working employees network because ipsos is such an international um, organization i believe we have a european network which kind of brings in colleagues from europe as well we have an lg lgbtqi network as well and um, we work quite closely to respond um, to the needs of employees um, whether it's around well-being mental health pushing the envelope on difficult conversations learning from thought leaders uh, and also kind of making sure we are all kind of tied in and amplifying the messages um, around belong um, cohesively as opposed to just kind of doing things ad hoc so very much for example the gender balance network is linked to the parent network it's linked to the lgbt pqi network it's linked to the ethnicity network and we try to look for common um platforms where we'd like to hear like i said from thought leaders experts and um, champion the desires and needs of our um colleagues really good to know how many employee resource groups you have uh, in particular the amplification of messages because this is what we talk about so much at dial it is very much it's almost like a heartbeat diversity inclusion belonging equity it's not something that we can do in abundance and then say hey we're done now it's like culture isn't it it's living it's breathing it's sleeping it's growing you talk about the different networks that you have there and i think the, the seven already that you mentioned we often talk about our 10 facets of the dial visible and invisible diversity and it requires everyone to amplify the message remain engaged it it requires a cadence and a frequency in order to keep the foot on the gas because this is an evolutionary journey that frankly will never ever finish i'm sure our children and our children's children will perceive diversity in very different ways they may listen back to this podcast in 10 10 years time and say oh well we're miles away now and brilliant stuff if they are but what's interesting about intersectionality in all these different areas is the comparables between the positive optimism and the shared belief systems under the umbrella that you have belong. Yet there's also the recognition of all of those different experiences and how can we bring those different experiences into the workplace in order to spearhead, to your point, learning from different leaders and the interconnectivity between those networks as 
as well as ultimately driving innovation, which is what this is all about. It is driving that innovation so that we can continue to, to be the best and most competitive organizations out there. So Neha, um, I wonder before we run out of time, because I know that we, we've covered so many things on this conversation, which has been brilliant. I've learned a lot already, I, I must say, and I could talk about this until the cows come home, as you know. Um, but I wonder whether we can dive into a couple of little final lightning round questions before we wrap up. And I will start with this, which sounds simple, but of course means different things to different people. What does diversity, inclusion, belonging and equity mean to you personally? I feel it means celebrating, recognizing and acknowledging the unique contributions of the people who are in the room and also kind of recognizing that there are certain types of people who are not in the room and who they are and understanding what the barriers and hurdles they face um, in their growth and progression um, and ultimately uh, for them to be uh, included. Um, so for me, it's, it's a broader conversation. It's not just about recognizing who's here, but also recognizing who's not here and having a more conscious understanding um, of what we can do to enable them to join us. Brilliant answer. In particular, the last part around being conscious. I know there's been a huge amount of research around unconscious bias and, and all these kind of things. And uh, I'll try not to fit, sit on the fence too much, but I really do believe that this is very much more about conscious inclusion. We all know that everyone has biases and being consciously inclusive to your point who's here who's not there is systematic bias there is systematic uh, barriers how can we now systematically change that whilst also keep the positive spin on this which is the celebration and the recognition and those aspects I also wonder if you could go back in time and speak to the the young, I mean, you're young already, but the very young Neha, let's say, back in, in, in India, Pakistan, considering what to do next. And I'm sure there's many people who are listening, thinking themselves, perhaps I'm at the beginning of my career journey and I'm wondering how I break down barriers or which perhaps the path has not been trodden before. Or perhaps I'm a seasoned executive thinking, well, I, I really want to, again, go and tread some paths that I have not seen be achieved by someone that looks or sounds like myself. Um, what would you say to, to your younger self or someone else listening in? I think I would, I would um, encourage that person to be braver and also be aware of the many kind of privileges I hold and look beyond skin color, look beyond social class, look beyond education, look beyond ability, look beyond cisgender, and just kind of recognize that all these social identities really play into who I am, even if I didn't ask for it. And then just reflect on how this affects me, but also other people. And so while I speak about myself, but there are other people who would appreciate um, a more active ally and so what could I do to be more uh, inclusive myself and uh, just kind of recognize that I also have um, inherited privileges that I didn't ask for but I, I do and so kind of recognize that I am in certain in groups and certain out groups and therefore I have the responsibility and duty to um, be more vocal and be braver. 
I like that. It's the the responsibility that we all hold and holding the mirror up ultimately to say, how can we understand ourselves better, but likewise keep our eyes and our ears open to being able to support and pull other people up as well, thus leveling the playing field. And finally, I wonder whether there's any sheroes or heroes or books, podcasts that you particularly enjoyed that you would feel it worthy to impart upon those listening today? I really wish I did, but um, I'm terrible with names. Um, but I feel you have to, I feel there's something on echo chamber. I feel very conscious that uh, you tend to gravitate towards writers who hold a political point of view, who, you know, hold the same values. And my encouragement would be to actually look for leaders who have a different point of view and learn from them. So my recommendation would be, for example, uh, to follow five Instagram leaders on a topic that you know nothing about. And that could be anything, uh, really. And just listen in, observe, listen in. It, don't make it about you, uh, but listen in for the opportunity of learning um, and helping amplify their message. What a wonderful note to end on, Neha. Thank you ever so much. It's been an incredibly exciting insightful podcast as expected we've covered everything from education around culture and caste system which I found particularly interesting as well as intersectionality uh, advice around spearheading the growth for successful employee resource groups it has it's been really it's been really enjoyable uh, and and very thought-provoking and I'll end on on some of the pieces that I enjoyed the very most and and what I would say is is this this concept of the in-group and the out-group I find uh, really really quite encouraging because actually it reflects the fact that every single one of us has certain elements of privilege um, and is in to an extent, but there's also areas in which I'm sure we can all remember there's times where we didn't belong or we were the person in the room that was thinking or saying something different to others. And so this interesting juxtaposition between the having and the not having is is fascinating. And I, I think for us as leaders, as humans, to be considering the aspects of difference and not just jumping towards those that we know the very best is really how we're going to grow and move forward. Because to your point, this is something that is evolving, it's growing, it's about amplifying these changing messages. The echo chamber point that you made at the end also feeds into that. And a number of the points throughout the podcast have really fed into that. How can we follow, understand, unblock barriers for those that are keen to be able to progress? How can we enhance working conditions and remove systematic bias that existed for a very long time in order to then move forward, but also to be able to celebrate and enjoy the differences that others bring into the workplace? So Neha, thank you very, very much indeed. It's just been wonderful having you on the show. For those who are listening, you can check out the Diverse Inclusive Leaders podcast inside our Dial Global Network app. If you search Dial Global Network in the app store, you will find it.
We also will be summarizing all the key points of learning, putting links in there to Neha, to Ipsos, to the, the script and the summary from today. So if you would prefer to read uh, that as opposed to listen, that's absolutely fine. Just make sure uh, you reach out to the team or I at Dar Global. You can also download us on Apple, Spotify, any of your favorite podcast channels. Um, but in the meantime, all that is left is for me to say thank you to Neha. You've been a brilliant guest on the show today. Thanks so much, Leila. Lovely to speak to you again and all the very best for your months to come. Oh, thank you ever so much. My name is Leila McKenzie-Dallas. I'm the founder and CEO of Dahl Global. You've been listening to the Diverse and Inclusive Leaders podcast today with Neha Mittal uh, from Ipsos. Visit us at www.dahlglobal.org forward slash podcast. Take care and we'll see you very soon.